Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslicht. Mickey, how are you doing on this lovely summer day? Uh, I am very, very sweaty. <laughs> well, that's not really unusual, though, is it? <laughs> uh, unfortunately not, but it's so so bloody hot. Um that uh yeah you know just it, it just happens it, this just this, this this just happens so okay so uh we've been we've made our guest uh, wait long enough so we'll just go ahead and introduce her um we're very uh, very pleased to have with us none other than uh Claudia Haas um Claudia is an associate professor of human development and social policy at Northwestern University i should note that um the associate professor is i believe very very new um, just recently tenured, I believe. It's so new that uh, Claudia's CV hasn't been updated uh, to reflect the fact that she's a, a tenured professor now. Um, she's cross-appointed at numerous uh, places at Northwestern, um, including uh, in the Department of Psychology. Uh, so Claudia got her PhD in psychology from the University of Vienna in uh, 2007. She did her postdoc at uh, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, she finished that postdoc in 2013. Um in terms of what Claudia studies, uh, she is a lifespan developmental psychologist. Uh, she examines uh, pathways uh, towards happy and healthy development across the lifespan, with a particular focus on the role of emotion uh, and motivation. Now, uh, uh, you know, kind of looking through her CV, I noticed uh, well, it's a lot of uh, really interesting uh, topics of research. Uh, only uh, only a few of which we'll probably get to today. Um, but I noticed a particular interest in emotion regulation, um, especially in uh, romantic couples. Um, and, it's, and, and there also seems to be quite a focus, at least maybe in the, early in her career, on the transition from uh, university education to, to work life. Um, and uh, I believe, I, I could be wrong about this, but I think Claudia is an avid listener of our podcast, which means we like her a lot already, right, Yoel? Uh, y- yes, absolutely. Although, um, I-, I just want to make clear that on my part, it's not contingent, Claudia, on you listening to the podcast. I would like you regardless, but I, I think for Mickey, it is highly contingent. In fact, <laughs> <laughs> my goodness, and I'm so I'm so honored and humbled to be on the show. And I actually, I, I believe, I still am an assistant professor, so I get promoted to associate September first. So I've been making. It's very, very clear everywhere that you still have to call me assistant, and um, but it's on the horizon. It's going to happen, and um, thank you so much for already foreshadowing that, Mickey. Well, it's a whole lot. So they they've already granted you tenure, but they've said, "How dare you? You cannot say you cannot actually call yourself an associate professor until a certain date." Yeah, exactly. And I should also say, um, because these things, for some people, they're really important. I have a courtesy appointment in the psychology department, which is a little bit different. So I, I, as, I, as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, Yoel and Claudia, I'm sweaty. Um, and one thing that I, that I find that helps with you know, this, this uh, extreme heat is, is beer. So um, I think we should you know, start drinking and uh, maybe talk about what we're drinking. So uh, Claudia, do you want to you wanna tell us what you're drinking? Yes, I was super tempted to actually grab a Stella from my fridge, but I didn't. I do. I am drinking a Daisy Cutter Pale Ale from Half Acre, which is a beer company in Chicago. And um, yeah, I really like it. Excellent. You well, you di- are you drinking a Stella? No, you know, the fridge Stellas have not regenerated yet. I may have like uh, overfished the, you know, uh, reservoir or whatever it is, but uh, I managed to find uh, Corona beer 
at the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> it is on discount. I don't know why that would be, um, but I'm drinking one and it's delightful. Uh, that, that is hilarious. Like they're they're like sales are plummeted because of their their unfortunate name. That's right. Um, and I'm ready to swoop in and buy them at a steeply discounted price. Yeah, that's right. And this it's ever a time to buy stock in whoever sells Corona right now. I think. Uh, um, right. Yes. Stock tip from us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely take stock t- stock tip from from us. Um, so I'm drinking uh, something called uh, Blood Moon uh, by Whitewater Brewing Company from the Ottawa Valley in Ontario. It's a blood orange sour, um, and I've kind of soured on sours the past little bit. Um, but like in the in the summer, it's just like so refreshing and, and nice. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm quite enjoying this. Um, so cheers, Claudia, and you all. Thanks, uh, thanks for for coming on. Cheers, guys. Cheers. All right, so Claudia, we'll. Um, I think we'll start. We like to start um, by getting a little, you know, a little personal, uh, if we can. Um, and I want. I certainly want us to, to 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 start with like your academic history, but maybe even before then, um, as we were uh, kind of preparing for the podcast, uh, you had mentioned. Um, like that you want to talk uh, potentially about, you know, your growing up in East Germany um, and kind of living through the fall of the Berlin Wall. And so do you mind sharing with us, like, you know, kind of that maybe a little bit of your, your early life uh, before, uh, before psychology? Yeah, for sure. And I do think the fact that I grew up in Dresden, East Germany in the 80s has obviously shaped me in many ways, but um, it also made me want to become a psychologist. So I actually knew pretty early on that I was really interested in psychology and the times in East Germany in the 80s for at least my family and I, these were really pretty dark times for many reasons. So you couldn't travel, you often couldn't get the basic necessities. There was the Stasi, no freedom of speech. The elections were a total farce, the propaganda. So it was really a totalitarian regime. And, and, I, and I really felt the weight of that, even as a little kid. And probably because my family was somewhat politically active. And um, while I was living through this and in this, um, I already then noticed that there were such differences in how people responded to that situation. And some appear to be really broken by the system and and others really went on their merry way. And yet some that carved out niches for themselves and created amazing freedom through music or literature and others who, well, you know, joined the Stasi and actually really believed that this was a good thing. And so these individual differences made me hugely interested in psychology. And um, I think when I was a little kid, I actually thought I would become um, a psychotherapist and fix everything. And um, a little little did I know that the wall would fall (laughs) and um, that I would eventually end up in the US of all places as an assistant professor. Can I uh, jump in here? This This wasn't in our show notes, but just as you were talking about uh, growing up in East Germany, this struck me. You know, this talk about authoritarianism has been uh, kind of resurgent here in the in the U.S. Or I guess I shouldn't say here, but in the U.S., um, both on the left and the right in different ways, right? So on on the left, people obviously are talking about Trump and his authoritarian tendencies. On the right, people are talking about oh, I don't know, Twitter mobs and cancellations as being the new cultural mm-hmm. Maoism, and again, like a form of like. Um, 
nascent totalitarianism if if you listen to uh some people so i'm curious like you know as somebody who's actually grown up in that sort of regime do these comparisons make any sense to you are you like this is just total bs do you see some parallels you know i would have it's a great question and i would have answered it differently just a couple of years ago i when i came to the us in 2009 um, it was the Obama presidency. You know, I lived in Berkeley, and I just fell in love with everything that I that I encountered. Um, and if somebody had said to me, you know, do you think the U.S. is kind of like going down a road of totalitarianism or authoritarianism, I would have said, I, I would have said, are you kidding me? Like never. And this was one of the, you know, huge draws that. And and I and I still see that by the way, the, a huge draw in allowing for a diversity of lifestyles and perspectives and you know ways of living and and I and I cherish that a lot, but I can't help but observe um, changes occurring in recent years that uh, make me wonder. And I do think it's it's really wrong to say, oh, this is just like. East Germany, or even worse to say, this is like Nazi Germany, but just the other association that often gets evoked. But I do think it's just a reminder that um, history is actually not something that has nothing to do with us. And these events and, um, you know, kind of like human tendencies um, might not be just something that maybe happened in East Germany or Nazi Germany one day, but um, maybe there's something maybe there's there's kind of like like a like a danger um that we have to be careful even now and i do think and i really want to make that very clear that there are many many <clears throat> resources and strengths that i see in the us right now and that give me a lot of hope but um i think that it's good to kind of like keep in mind the dangers of going down a slippery slope of good intentions. In the case of East Germany, it was, after all, the land where socialism would get implemented and everyone would be happy. And that was the big hope. And it started out with really noble goals and just a lot of optimism and and excitement. And, and what happened was just an absolute abomination of the whole idea. And I think since we're going to talk about errors later on, you know, maybe people had they realized that this was that they were going down the wrong path. Basically, maybe East Germany would have would have not ended the way it ended, but but it did. And I think it's a reminder um, to be uh, you know to be careful and to kind of like really be true to your core values. And to and I think one of the core values that drew me to the US is this appreciation of difference and diversity and respect um, you know of one another and. And in a way, also kindness. That's at least the qualities that I did perceive and do per- and do still perceive. So I, I want to continue a little bit with uh, kind of your, your your now maybe your professional history. Um, so as we as we mentioned at the top, you're uh, about to be an associate professor um, at an at elite university in the U.S. Um, but how did you end up there? I mean, academically. So you you had some goal of being a psychotherapist as a, you know as a, as a um, as a younger person, and then eventually you started studying psychology. So yeah, walk us through your your your, your academic journey. Yeah, so I did my undergrad and also my PhD at Friedrich Schiller Universität Vienna in East Germany, and it's actually the same university where Karl Marx got his PhD. 
And there were rumors that he got it there because it was so easy to get a PhD from the University of Jena. But of course, people at Jena would say, no, 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 you know, like we have the highest standards. Um, so I, I count myself being part of a really amazing line of PhDs. And um, during my time in Jena, um, I started working with Jutta Heckhausen at UC Irvine, who became just a wonderful mentor and a friend. And um, then I got a fellowship, fellowship from the German Research Foundation to do a postdoc with Bob Levinson at UC Berkeley. And I spent the most amazing four years there. And Bob Levinson is not only a rock star scientist, but He's also just an amazing mentor and I learned so much from him. And yeah, when I arrived at UC Berkeley in 29, uh, to, sorry, 2009, the, so this was really the beginning of a new life for me in many ways. And you know, I met my husband in Berkeley. I fell in love with him there. I fell in love with the Bay Area. I fell in love with the academic world that I was part of in Berkeley. And everything was just so exciting and cool and yeah, these were the Obama years. And I just remember this time as really brimming with hope and promise and optimism. And of course, I also do remember the anxiety and the uncertainty that I had as a postdoc about my future. Would I, you know, would I find a job at all? Should we go back to Europe? And um, so that was also part of it. And eventually, yeah, I think I got really, really lucky and was offered this job at Northwestern. And um, where I started my lab, the Lifespan Development Lab, and I'm working now with really brilliant graduate students and brilliant undergraduate students on research projects that I think are really exciting. And yeah, I have two kids on the tenure track, and they are now two and four. And um, so the past couple of years have just been incredibly busy and, and also in a way really transformational, I think. You know, becoming a parent really changed me, I think, for the most part, for the better. Um, but it's, you know, making things right now. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm here. It's also making things right now really tricky. And yeah, you want me to tell you a little bit more about the research that we do right now? Well, well you know, we'll, we'll definitely get to that. But I, I, can you tell can you tell us, like, um, you know, uh, why did you study? Why did you study with Bob Levinson? So, what were you studying? You know, at you know, at your PhD level, that would, would make sense to work with uh, with Bob Levinson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, my early years, and I keep, I do maintain an interest in motivation. So, my early years, um, I was really interested in motivation and the kinds of goals people pursue and how they go about pursuing them, and also how they disengage from unattainable goal goals. And I did realize that emotion was just a huge part of that story and that goal pursued and you know goal adjustment weren't just these cold motivational processes but they were infused with all sorts of emotions and I had no idea how to really study emotions and um yeah and Judah cousin said to me you know there is this really amazing person at UC Berkeley and so I wrote Bob an email and um and I'm just so so thankful that he took a chance on me and said to me, you know, you can, um, if you get the funding, you know, come here. And in the beginning, when I when I got to the yes, I thought I would stay two years, which was the length of the fellowship, and then return to East Germany. And um, so I never had any plans to permanently immigrate to the yes. You know, I got here with like two two suitcases, and um, yeah, <laughs> and then and then I think things. Things um, 
developed in a little bit of a different direction. But I'm really, really glad they did. Okay, so I want to ask you, uh, you know, uh, maybe a more specific question about uh, one of your research papers. You were you were a second author on the on this work, um, but I was you know as I was preparing for uh, for for our interview, um, it is I noticed that it's your your most cited uh, work, which is a paper on emotion regulation uh, uh, in uh, in. Marital, in married couples. Mm-hmm. Um, the title is Emotional Regulation Predicts Marital Satisfaction More Than a Wife's Tale. Um, so this is, I found to be really, really interesting. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, about the work. Yeah, for sure. So um, one of the reasons why we study emotions in couples is that relationships and especially relationship conflict, but also all of the good things that we experience in relationships, these are really potent triggers of all sorts of emotions. And um, I've now been doing this kind of work in my own lab too, where we have couples come into the lab and have them fight. And in this paper, we look at um, how spouses downregulate negative emotions after they've kind of like become really agitated. And we kind of like, started this work by saying, you know, we know that negative emotions are not really that great for a relationship, but into every relationship, some negative emotion must fall, so to speak. And maybe it's um, it's about how people get out of these zones of toxicity, you know, how fast can they basically kind of like return to a calmer and cooler state. And um, this, this work with um, my wonderful friend and colleague, um, Leanne Block, who is the first author, and Bob Levinson, who is the senior author on this paper, we looked at um, a 15-minute conflict conversation and um, looked at how spouses rated their own emotions during the conversations, the, the emotional behaviors that they showed on their face and in their body language, and also their physiological arousal. And we went in and identified these kind of like hot zones of like these negative emotional events and then basically counted the number of seconds that it took couples to return to a pre-specified threshold after a negative emotional event. It's kind of like a measure of spontaneous emotion regulation. And um, and then we looked at, well, you know, like, does this matter for marital satisfaction, which is one of the key relationship outcomes. If you are overall really dissatisfied with your marriage, your risk to eventually get divorced goes up. And so it's a really important outcome. And we found that over and above all sorts of other covariates, including how many negative emotional events you had during that conversation in the first place, above and beyond these factors, it didn't really matter how fast you downregulated your negative emotions in terms of better marital satisfaction cross-sectionally and also predicting positive changes in marital satisfaction over time with a really important caveat. This only this effect was specific to vibes. And um, your listeners can kind of like find the whole Reddit discussion that developed surrounding this paper. It's a really long thread um, where people have all sorts of opinions what's behind this gender difference and uh, what do you make of it. And um, one of the things that we speculate in this paper is that um, we often look at women as the emotional centers in the relationship. So if the wife can kind of like downregulate or the woman can downregulate, that is who counts for shaping marital satisfaction. Um, But there's obviously a number of other explanations that you might have. And um, so for us, it's been actually um, foundational for other work that we're conducting right now, where we're looking at 
mental health outcomes like anxiety and depression as another domain that is really responding or implicated in emotion regulation. And um, there appears to be something about um, yeah, gender that makes these effects, you know, kind of like work really differently for men and women. And, you know, you might say, well, you know, maybe men are better off not downregulating negative emotions too fast. And maybe this is something that they are already doing um, to begin with, at least in marital conflict. So maybe they would be better off by actually sitting with that feeling just a little bit longer. Um, so I'm curious about this Reddit uh, conversation. So I did actually see a Reddit conversation, but I don't think it was related to your paper. Um, but it just struck me that like, so you ha you ended your paper with, you know, like a, more than a, a wives tale, but it seemed like you could have used another idiom, which is like a very, I think some people would say a sexist, uh, a sexist idiom, happy wife, happy life. Mm -hmm. Um and so I did see a big long Reddit discussion about that. Um, but tell me about the Reddit discussion of uh, of your paper. Um, you know, and I and I must say, um, I haven't followed it um, at all. I just um, I just happened to you know have glanced at the thread, and I think that people are just very interested in differences between men and women, and especially in relationships. And I think there's often a question about you know, who's, who's to blame when things go wrong? And so one of the ways, you know, that this paper could be used to blame someone would be to say, oh, yeah, it's like the woman. So they just need to calm themselves down and then everything would be good. And I don't think that this is necessarily the message or the, you know, interpretation that we would look at. Um, we would We would look at it in terms of, well, who is kind of like perceived as as responsible for regulating the marital climate in the relationship, um, and not as an odd statement, but more as an if statement. Yeah. So uh, I wonder whether you've looked at one way to think about this is that you know the woman exogenously has more or less ability to motion regulate, and that's better or worse from the relationship. Uh, another possibility is that the man is in some way contributing by things that he's doing to either help or hinder her process of emotion regulation. Have you examined that at all? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the next step, one of the next steps, if the pandemic ever ends, I swear I get to it, um, is to really look at it at a more uh, microdynamic level, to really look at the sequences of what is happening in each of these seconds and what is the husband doing and how is the wife responding that eventually results in quicker or more prolonged, you know, down-regulation episodes. And um, and I do think the question of who's to blame is really not fruitful at all because this is a dyadic context and both people contribute to the phenomena that emerge in that situation. So it's it's really there's a there's an there's an emerging quality that both partners play a role in. And I think that's true for all relationships, but it becomes, I think, especially apparent in, in these kinds of close relationships. Another thing I'm curious about is what about same-sex couples? Right, so mm -hmm. is it the case that in same-sex couples, one partner adopts sort of more of the emotional center of the relationship role, either due to kind of uh, pre-existing disposition or just because there's this dynamic that pushes them to specialize in different ways? Um, or is it that this is a dynamic that you really only see in heterosexual couples and not in same-sex couples? Is anything known about that at all? 
Yeah, I love this question. And I think that's one of the next frontiers in relationship research. And um, my colleagues, Sarah Holly and others, have really, uh, you know, been trailblazers in this kind of work. And some of their findings show that dynamics that we know to be very gendered from cross-sex couples, like a pattern that we call demand withdrawal pattern, where typically the man um, withdraws and the wife demands, you find that same pattern also in same-sex couples. And that to me is so interesting because it suggests it's not about the biology, but it's about different roles that you say that people adopt. And this is such a cool paper where Sarah, Sarah Holly and her colleagues even show that who ends up as the demander and the withdrawal has something to do with who holds the power in the relationship. And the person who holds the power is the one who withdraws and kind of like wants to preserve the status quo and doesn't really see any reason to change anything, right? The person with less power is the one who kind of like nags and critiques and says, you know, we have to, we have to really do something about it. And traditionally, these two roles have often been gendered, but it's not something about the biology, but something about the the, the tr- traditional dynamics of a of a cross sex relationship. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, okay, so so you have uh, two more questions. Um, <laughs> the, the first is: Is it hard to get people to fight in the lab? Not at all. Um, it is so. <laughs> <laughs> it is so gratifyingly easy. And you have to kind of like really understand how the procedure works. I asked you, UL, and you, Michael, to kind of like list like the really top disagreements that you have with your spouse. Wait, hold on, hold on, Claudia, before, before you continue, I can you do this for us, for UL and I? Like, okay, we're, we have this kind of relationship, uh, this, this kind of, you know, uh, a relationship. So, mm-hmm. okay, get us to fight. Let, let's do it. Oh my god! Game okay. well. You game. You got to consent. I guess. I, uh, okay, I'll I'll try this. <laughs> uh, yes. Um. So I would let you um independently write down your top disagreements in your relationships, and um then also rate the severity of these disagreements, and you know, I I've only I need thirty seconds. That's, I I have it already. Okay. <laughs> Do you really? I, I couldn't come up with anything. What's what, Wait, is it about my drinking? It's definitely about your drinking. <laughs> oh, I knew it. But he's right, though. I do often shirk the drinking. It's like I, I don't feel good about it. I just, you know, sometimes I don't want to drink. Wait, so hold on. So then given that... Am I, do you have, are you the one who has the power? Yeah, because like, you're demanding that I drink and, and I can sort of passively refuse to, right? And you can't do anything about it. Right. So I'm so I'm the wife then? Uh well we don't she just got through saying that it's, it doesn't have to be gendered. <laughs> All right. We, what about you, UL? Come uh, on. You, you can do what? It. I no, I, I honestly I I can't come up with anything. Sometimes you get me the show notes kind of late. It'd be nice to have more notice. <laughs> Okay, yeah, but then, a- but then you are putting them together. So <laughs> should I really complain? I don't know. We, I, I would say we have quite an idyllic relationship, Claudia. I, I think you do. As a relationship scientist, I completely approve, and I actually do think you've demonstrated one of the key dynamics that we see in happier couples that. Um, you laugh a lot, so you diffuse any existing tension with a lot of humor. Um, there was a lot of talk about how you already agree about that, um, the kinds of language you use. I wish I had been able to measure your physiology and 
might have seen actually probably um you know quite a quite an adaptive pattern of physiological arousal and um yeah so not every couple explodes in a terrible fight and it's exactly the couples who do that you really kind of like want to look more deeply at and you have then you know good reasons to go and ask and wonder about their mental health their physical health their relationship satisfaction so the the music really is and in the individual differences of how couples navigate this common prompt that they all get and then what they make of that is just so revealing and so interesting and such a mini window into the life of a relationship that I just, you know, I don't get tired of it. I just love doing this work. Well, I, I'm heartened to hear that our relationship prognosis is good. <laughs> I'm very heartened by it. Good. That means we have a long life together still, you will. That's, that's um, right. That's right. Um, I'm not sure that's a good or bad thing. Well, but, you know, uh, good for us, maybe. It is a good thing. Oh, my goodness. For your listeners, too. Oh, uh, well, um, thank you. Thank you. I, I have one more question, and then maybe we ought, we ought to break and, uh, and have another beer. Um, I wonder whether doing this research makes you better at relationships, like from your personal oh, you experience. Know, I get this question so much and I've kind of like over the years have tried to talk to my husband and ask him, you know, like, what do I tell people if they ask me that? And I do think I love my husband and I, I'm super happy with our relationship. Don't worry, he doesn't listen to the show, Claudia. You can, know, you can be honest. But it's definitely true that we also do fight. And one of the best ways to make me really mad is when he says to me, you of all people should know not to fight like as a professional psychologist i'm just gonna say your your husband fights dirty (laughs) i I think that's uh that's a great strategy does he read your papers and then like haul them out and be like on this page (laughs) you know what he does he does read my paper but he's a really big fan of my research and um super supportive and it's also mostly tongue-in-cheek um, and he says these things. Um, but I think it's just testimony to uh, the power of emotions that when you're in the in the middle of a fight, it is very hard to kind of like rem- remind yourself that it would probably be better to calm down a little bit. And I think that we, our evolutionary history had, has just equipped us with these really powerful emotions that can override a lot of other considerations in the moment. And, um, you know, and I think, you know, sometimes um, I'm kind of proud of myself in a fight and I think, you know, my done, Claudia, but other times I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> this, was, this was not good. And, but then, um, and I think this, you know, we can transition into the second segment at some point, but I think that's a good illustration of, well, what do you do then when you feel really, really bad about having really messed up in a fight? And there's a lot of things that I think you can actually do in the aftermath to repair and, you know, get closer and apologize and use this as a, as a you know, as a kind of like opportunity to actually get closer eventually through these through these fights too. Wow, Claudia, do you have podcasting experience? Because that was such a beautiful transition. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm still waiting for you all to, to apologize to me about like, you know, I, I, at least a half a dozen grievances that I have. Okay, well, um, I, but maybe- I will accept the list, um, perhaps <laughs> off air. Um, but, but why don't we take a break? And in order to make you happy, I will drink another beer. 
Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're uh, both reachable on Twitter via the show's handle at Four Beers Pod. We both check that account, uh, the app mentions, and the DMs. If you'd rather email us, the show's email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Finally, our website is fourbeers.com. You can find our current episode and all of our uh, back catalog of episodes there. You can also drop us a line there if you like. Uh, if you are enjoying the show, um, we really appreciate it. If you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We've had a couple of nice reviews lately, which we really appreciate. Um, X underscore F wrote us a review and uh, uh, along with um, some very nice compliments, uh, added a a very uh, kindly phrased critique, which is, um, it's that UL perhaps too often deprives the audience of beer discussion by drinking something else. So uh, X underscore F is on your team here, Mickey, and uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try and do better. You know, I can't promise to be perfect, but I'm gonna try and do better. Uh, that's very. I feel like that's like very uh, relationship enhancing of you, UL. I feel like you're you know dealing head on with my problems. Um, I feel my emotions have been down regulated a little bit. Good. Yeah. I just uh, I want you to feel heard here. You know. <laughs> you know what bothers me is that it's a third person for you to hear me that's what bothers me oh, yeah. oh i see damn damn go <laughs> yeah 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 that's uh, that's fair and uh we should we should discuss that later so um do we do we want to talk about what we are drinking uh yeah yeah claudia what, what do you got for us um you know i actually did grab the cellar and um excellent is it from is it from ul's fridge by any chance yeah no no i kind of like i'm also feeling a little bit antsy about you know taking a side here in this fight <laughs> it's just a complete coincidence yeah you are now mickey's enemy good. sad to say but yeah i know <laughs> uh what do you got ul uh i i have another corona with lime it's been treating me well it's like uh, in this hot weather it's actually it's seriously perfect yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, so I've got something. Uh, it is. It's, I love the name of it, and actually, kind of, maybe fits our previous conversation. Um, it's uh, it's called uh, Society of Beer Drinking Ladies. Is the name of the beer. Um, <laughs> it's a hazy session IPA with grapefruit and lime. It's uh, from right here from uh, a local brewery uh, from Toronto, uh, Henderson uh, Brewing Company. Um, and uh, I've had this before, and it's it's delicious. So I I, I don't know what the what, what the where the name comes from, uh, but it's a nice label, and I I like it. Excellent. Well, I love it. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. So uh, Claudia, um, I think for the for the you know the the, the second part of the show, we want to um, 
to talk about something else, really. Um, and that is that this is in a way how we kind of started, uh, started talking to one another. Um, and maybe some of our listeners uh, might recognize you because we, I mean, very quickly, in a, in a, maybe a, in a few episodes now, a couple months ago, uh, on our episode about uh, how we're coping, uh, each of us, uh, you all and I, how we were coping with, um, you know, the pandemic. And I read uh, one of your tweets, which I found, um, I don't want to use the word inspiring, but but it made me, it made me, it normalized what I was feeling. Mm-hmm. It, it made me feel like, oh, okay, I'm not the only one. Um, and I'll read it again, uh, just to remind our listeners. Um, and this is again from a few months ago, maybe, it, maybe towards the beginning of the pandemic, really. Um, so right now I am uh, failing at everything. Failing as a parent, partner, researcher, friend, the list goes on. But somehow, failing as a parent hurts the most. I have some trust that I can repair the other failures. With the kids, I'm not so sure. Um, so I must admit, after I read it, after I read your tweet on air, I was like, shit, maybe like I'm, I shouldn't have done that. Like, I, I, you know, you did tweet about it, so it was public. But nonetheless, like you probably were surprised that we talked about this. Um, on air. So yeah, tell me like, kind of like what was going, you know, I mean, obviously your, your, your tweet says what was in your, your state of mind, but again, what was like, what was your life like? How, like, how did, what, what led to that tweet? Yeah. You know, as you're reading it, as you were reading it, I was taken back to that time and it just had this image in my mind of myself just being so down and dejected and feeling so terrible about myself. And these were the early days of the pandemic. And, um, my, so my kids are two and four, there's no daycare, anything, what I was trying to do was kind of like continue my work life and on top of it also be at home with the kids 24-7 and also be at home with my husband 24-7. And, um, and, and, I, and I kind of like noticed very clearly that this was not working at all. And it was, the house was burning, you know, at all sides. It was really really difficult and really hard and um and I also saw you know other people that I at least perceived as you know having their shit together and writing these COVID papers and I thought you know like this was supposed to be the time for me to get something done again after you know like having having two kids and kind of like going through the pregnancy and maternity leave and then I was I was thinking you know like I'm finally back in the game and boom the pandemic happens and there's there's also nothing that I can can contribute to to research and that also felt really sucked and it felt like such a loss to me and and um I tweeted it out out without thinking about it too much and um what happened then i felt obviously super awkward and in a way also really embarrassed about it and I, you know i was kind of like joking to you um my claim to fame is now to kind of like end of the international podcast scene by you reading my tweet about what a loser i am and i'm like oh you know so this is how people are gonna get to know me but then i i thought you know it, it spoke to you, Mickey, and I think it spoke to a bunch of other people who contacted me in the aftermath of this. And then I had so many people tell me um, that I'm doing great. I got so much support. And I also got, I think, a lot of reminders just of the insanity, trying to kind of like keep on doing, like trying to live my life as if the pandemic hadn't happened. A real reminder that I really can't 
do everything right now. And um, and, I, and I think I needed to go through this dark valley of just feeling so terrible to really implement a lot of changes and um, drastically reduce the hours that I work, which really benefited, you know, the, my relationship with my kids a lot. My husband and I, you know, I think I'm much happier. And the work is obviously suffering. And, um, and I think, you know, I'm kind of like now at a place where I look at other people who are being productive, less with jealousy, which I had a lot of in the beginning. And now I look at it more like, oh, I'm actually really glad that someone is doing this work. And I do believe that psychological science is so important and um, actually is, is, is something that I that I want to kind of like be part of. And even if I can't be part of it right now through my work, I can kind of like cheer the people on who are doing the work. And I, and I think that that whole reframing also of how I look at other people's productivity also made a huge difference for me. And now I actually can, you know, return to this place of just being so excited and happy for people who are writing cool papers and, you know, find, you know, making discoveries and discussing things. And you know, I'm like, at least someone is doing the work and then the pandemic might end some time. And then, you know, I'm going to be part of it again. How do you, I mean, that's remarkable. I mean, uh, I mean, the, uh, what I found remarkable is your, your, it's such a pro-social attitude, right? So it's, it, it shifted from like, you know, shit, like, you know, I wanted to get back in the game. I wanted to be mm-hmm. doing all this stuff and to now being like, I'm happy for all of you. And now I sound, I sound like I'm such a good person, but I have to tell you how I got there. I was just a lot, a lot of shit. And there were a lot of conversations that I had with various people to, in order to get to that point. And I don't think that this is something that you can force yourself to adopt. It's really something that I had to live through all of these negative emotions to eventually really see the bigger picture. And, and I believe that had someone said to me, oh, you know, like Claudia, don't be angry or upset about this. You know, like there's so many other people doing the work. I would have reacted being like, you know, F off basically, right? So I had to go through this myself to, to get to that place eventually. And I, um, you know, it's still, I don't know, Mick, you can probably like also tell us a little bit how your journey has been, right? In the aftermath of you reading the tweet. But I I feel I'm in a much better place now than I was when I, when I tweeted that out. And part of what got me here was by tweeting it out and all of the support and the conversations and the invite on the show too that happened in the aftermath of that tweet. Yeah, it's kind of amazing uh, how someone sharing their moments of um, vulnerability um, can really open things up, right? Uh, I think for for, for other people. Um, and yeah, so for me, you know, so for me as well. Like, I mean, so I read that and 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 it felt. Um, it felt so human. It felt so real. Like, uh, as opposed to, you know, the uh, kind of more plasticky, fake kinds of tweets of productivity. And it, I don't know. It just, I mean, again, maybe I'm not there. Um, it just, yeah, I just, it just resonated with me. It, like this, this kind of like wallowing in like in, in the bad stuff that happens. Like I, I, I yeah, I, I don't think there's enough emphasis on that in our society. There's, there's too much emphasis on the positive and showing our positive sides. Um, and the, I've always gravitated towards t- to people who have, you know, 
talked about like their failings, to, you know, and, you know, even like elevated them to, you know, like, look, I'm not like, not that they're really proud of their failings, but they're not embarrassed of them either. Um, and I, I've known an, an, enough people in my life where they're so, so embarrassed of, of, of their failures, of, of their mistakes, um, have trouble, you know, admitting to, to, to making mistakes or, or failing. Um, so yeah, so I, I just, I, I kind of, I just kind of attracted to that, to, to the, the, you know, people like you who are, are, are comfortable doing that. Um, and, but a lot of people, you know, aren't in there, are you, you know, and they take solace from, from, from like people like you who are, are, are able to kind of speak comfortably about, uh, about their failures. Um, yeah, but Mickey, it wasn't, I wasn't comfortable, you know, I felt like so embarrassed and, you know, I was like, this is loser talk and I don't want to be a failure. So I had that too. I had that piece in me too. Right. And I, and I would love to say, Oh, I feel super comfortable sharing my mistakes, but it wasn't, it wasn't really true. But I think there was probably um, another piece in me that felt I needed to share this. And one of the reasons I think why it's so important to talk about it is that Errors and mistakes are so human and they're so, they're so, they're such a part of life. And I would even argue that we need to make mistakes to live better lives. Um, and people would probably agree in the abstract. And you have all sorts of psychological theories that talk about the importance of making mistakes. And there's a whole, you know, the open science movement, I think, was also inspired by, you know, kind of like admitting and seeing your mistakes. And in the abstract, a lot of people would agree that mistakes are important, but then actually living through them and dealing with them just feels so, can feel so bad in the moment. And um, this is the part that doesn't get talked about a lot. And so I think people are left with this discrepancy between knowing it's, you know, in principle, okay to make mistakes and maybe even important, but then actually coming face to face with your own flaws and failures and mistakes is just really really hard and i do think that we need to i think as a almost as a society to find ways to become more okay with that and i think that's really fundamental you know just thinking back to east germany i think that had people in east germany been able to be really honest with themselves and like looking at what society they created you know together and saying you know like this is like fucked up this you know like this is a huge mistake um i think they would have spared a lot of people a lot of pain and you can say the same things for relationships you know they're just kind of like admitting mistakes can be so healing and i also think for our own lives you know i do think that these negative emotions are disruptive and they disrupt something that isn't working you know the negative emotions that come with being like in the in the face like standing in the face of failure right and i think these negative emotions are really important because they make you stop what you're doing and even though they're super uncomfortable probably and really unpleasant they are also and if you can use them they can also be real gifts and kind of like allowing you to take a different path and um, and change, you know, and change in ways that um, actually, you know, get you get you on a trajectory that that is better than what you had before. So, Mickey, I I know you've written some about uh, you know your own research in a way that's 
that I would say is quite critical, right? Where you really are talking about stuff that you now regret or, or view as as mistakes. Um, and then on the show as well, you've you know talked about that from a research perspective, but also like as a as a parent. Um, so I, I wonder whether you have a similar feeling about this, like that this is this is essential in some way to to get it out there. Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I mean, I, I, you know, so uh, in my in my my life, um, I yeah, I'm open about the mistakes I make, um, and I'm like. I'm not sure why. I, I'm, I, I, I'm not sure why. Like I'm, I'm this way. But like, um, it's uh, I'm, I, I'm like forgive people. Like I think readily, um, and I'm also like willing, at least, at least I think, willing to say when I make mistakes um, and to cop to them and like, yeah, I screwed up. Sorry. Um, maybe it's the Canadian me, the, the I'm sorry part at least. Um, but uh, I wish I, I wish I saw more of it. Uh, uh, and I think like, at least, you know, for me, like on the, like professionally, um, I realized at one, at one point, like, you know, I've reached a, a certain stage in my career and um, I just wasn't seeing like senior people, like, you know, admit, literally not, not admitting to anything. And, you know, not only did we, you know, is whatever, you know, what they did perfectly fine. Um, they did nothing wrong. Maybe mistake, mistakes were made, but not by me. Um, and it just was very, very frustrating with, you know, with few exceptions and even to this day, like, so you, I'm glad you mentioned the open science, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, angle to this, because I, I agree. I think part of open science, this movement is, you know, uh, error detecting. So de- de- detecting errors in, in work. Um, and as scientists, it, it seems like it's especially critical that we, um, evaluate uh, evidence in terms of um, if there are errors or not. But it's remarkable how, um, well, A, you know, in part of the open science movement, we don't, we don't talk about like the human side of that. Like, it, it, you know, the, there are humans on the other side of this. There, there are emotions that they have, and it's not so easy to admit your mistakes. So when you accuse someone of, you know, making a mistake, they're going to respond a certain way. They're not robots, they're humans. So what can we do to help them get there? And I don't think we've really we've really done much of that, um, you know, as as a field. Um, and I had a second point, but I don't remember what that is now. <laughs> <laughs> but I but I guess like I, I wish I, I wish there were more examples. And there are some, there are a few. So like this is paper spearheaded by um, by Julia, Julia Rohrer, Talia Arconi was involved as well, um, and a number of others whose names I, I, I'm forgetting, where they're kind of uh, going over uh, nominating papers of their own where um, they no longer stand behind. They're like, I, you know, these are products of potentially, you know, questionable research practices, and I'm no longer sure of how solid the evidence is here. Um, and what, you know, I think it was an amazing idea, um, but very few people actually kind of took the the suggestion and actually kind of admitted to publicly, you know, that they no longer, you know, stand by you know, th- their papers. And most of the people who admitted it were kind of relatively junior, not like more established people. Um, and I feel that's like really sad. I feel that's a, like a, it's a poor testament to, um, to our, you know, our lack of intellectual humility as scientists, our, our, our inability to like look back and reflect and say, you know what, in the past 10 years, I've learned this, you know, a bunch of things and given what I've learned you know, I no longer trust or no longer believe or less, at least, or have less confidence in, 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 in all this stuff. Um, 
And I wish, yeah, I wish there was more of that. Do we, I mean, like, is, is it just obvious why? Like, you know, why would we have such trouble with it? Well, I, I mean, this is uh, interesting that you bring this up specifically because uh, I don't know whether I've talked about this on the show or not, uh, but I had a paper with David Pizarro uh, where we showed um, that uh, people who are more disgust sensitive or more uh, intuitively disapproving of uh, same-sex couples. And there was one manipulation in there that um, – we had an IAT study and then we had one using this other scenario-based method. And it was at the time I thought like a really clever way to show this, uh, but it was small sample. And we started hearing from people, Hey, I tried to use this and it didn't really uh, replicate you guys. So I was pretty like unconfident about this study and I was talking to David about it. And he, he was like, yeah, we really should like write up that if we think that it's not real, like we should get that into the literature. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great in theory. But then like, I don't know, I was working on new shit, you know? And it's just like, from an opportunity cost perspective, like getting people to do this, even if they, in the abstract, think it would be a good idea if they and everybody else did it is tough because everybody's busy, right? So somehow you have to make this more attractive to people than everything else that they could be working on. And for me at the time, it just seemed more attractive to be working on something else. And of course, there's also kind of incentives around, you know, you want to be publishing new work, like it doesn't really help you reputationally to be like, I was wrong about this. Or maybe it does, like maybe that's wrong. Um, maybe you get some credit for that, but I think you get the most credit for publishing new papers about new stuff. Right. So I, I see it as mostly a function of that more than anything else. Time is limited. Um, and people are mostly going to work on publishing something new because that's what's incentivized. Yeah. And I think that, um, the bar Mickey that you have is also a really high one where you admit to a failure or an error really publicly in front of a worldwide audience you know, so to speak. And I do think that the distance from I'm not going to admit to anything to I'm going to admit to my mistakes or errors in front of this audience of, you know, potentially millions of people. I think that's a really hard distance, very hard to kind of like get people to go that, you know. And I do think you could think a little bit about steps in the interim. Um, like you are and, and David Bizarro talking about, you know, like, do you have, like, do you trust this finding? And I guess you are, you probably have shared, you know, your doubts also with the people you, who contacted you, right? And I would also really um, want to celebrate and elevate that as a really important piece of the puzzle too, you know? So I think that I hear you, Mickey, and kind of like demanding some sort of public accountability, so to speak, but I would not underestimate the importance of people um, on smaller scales really um, you know kind of like looking looking at their own work and you know beyond that their their life and um, and sharing this with smaller audiences where it feels less threatening and you also have an idea of who you're talking to and you can kind of like also gauge a little bit more the reactions um, as opposed to making this super duper public. You know, I was just thinking about, I have all my papers on my website, right? And what if I had a little link by the paper that's like notes about reproducibility and I could be like, 
uh, you probably shouldn't try to base your uh, PhD mm-hmm. work on this, right? Or, mm-hmm. or at least make sure you can get it first, right? And I think for a lot of us, like we have a feeling about the stuff that we really would bet our life savings on replicating versus the stuff that's maybe a little more doubtful. Um, and it would be nice to note it somehow, like in a way that requires a bit less uh, effort and uh, I guess exposure is would be one way to uh, risk of embarrassment. I don't know. You know what? Um, I, so I haven't seen it personally, but one of my students mentioned this to me. Um, so uh, Jamil Zaki wrote a book, uh, I guess, a few months ago called uh, "What's It? The War on oh, the War on Kindness." The War for yeah, the kindness, kindness, right? The War, yeah. Um, and uh, so it's a book on empathy and, and kindness and compassion. Um, and uh, apparently, uh, he has an Excel sheet that I get maybe you can get from his website where he kind of ranks all the papers that he cites um, in terms of the confidence that he has in how replicable uh, they are. Um, and what you just said, Yoel, I mean, and, and you combine what, what uh, Jamil did um, where you kind of rank, you know, your own personal estimate of the replicability of your own work. Um, that would be kind of interesting, right? If, if kind of it's really small commitment, um, could it be like a, whatever, a five point Likert scale, <laughs> um, and kind of rank your own, your own work. And it, yeah, I'm sure there'll be variability. There'll be ranges. Like, so, you know, some of, some of the, some of our works we're much more confident about, some are much, much less. Um, yeah, that could be a nice start. Yeah. I like that. All right. Well, I, I'm going to put that on the list of things that I will do as soon as I have more time available. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and speaking of time, because I think the, the the tweet and the conversation is is much broader than just research, right? So it is, and it's a very different um, domain. But I think the you know ways and we in you know in which we hurt other people and do wrong by other people, or you know that like these relationships are just like full of mistakes. And similarly, you know, like people kind of like hurt us maybe even not meaning to do so and um one of the things from the couple's literature is really you know acknowledging that this is a central part of any relationship and um there are a number of ways of you know to to really repair that and to be uh, to not get defensive when your partner tells you you know you all really need to drink some more beer and <laughs> and you didn't get defensive, so it was like great modeling, great modeling on your part, you all. That's just because you're here, Claudia. Normally, he's defensive <laughs> all the time. <laughs> um, and and so I I think that in these um, closer in these close relationships, there is um, a responsibility too on both the person admitting to the mistake and the pe- and the person kind of like hearing that apology and I think both have a responsibility of you know a like admitting to the mistake in a way that it doesn't turn it into an attack on the other person you know yeah I did that wrong but just did it only because you drove me to it um and the person receiving that message to uh, you know kind of like really acknowledging and, and honoring how hard that is and um and I think that if done right you can there can be so much goodness that springs from those moments. So, and I think that there's another example of how 
this talk about aerospeed is so important is, you know, in the abstract, we know it, but there's so much value in actually doing this in your own life, you know. And then, of course, with kids, it's much harder. But I at least found one really good thing that worked for me is, you know, to really apologize to my kids and say, I'm so sorry, like, this was really, this was really not good, but I did, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry I yelled at you. And, um, and I've been so amazed and surprised by how sweet they are, you know, as so my older son says to me, that's okay, mom, you know, and just hearing that is so reassuring. And I, and I, and I, yeah, and I'm kind of like really, really glad to know that, Yes, you know, ideally I would not mess up, but I do. But then I can make it okay. I I think and come to a come to a point where, yes, we are closer, you know. And then I think, conversely, it makes it also easier for my son. I think to apologize to me because we already have been there, just with reverse roles. And then I tell him, you know, it, it that's okay. So, uh, you know, as you were describing this. Um, I had this question pop into my head, which I've never really considered, which is, why should it be so hard to apologize to somebody who's close to you? Mm-hmm. So I could, it, it, you know, it, it's just like something that I sort of took for granted that is difficult, but it, it, mm-hmm. it's not clear why that should be. So in a public context, of course, it, it makes sense that people would be reluctant to admit wrongdoing because there's possible reputational consequences. Uh, Maybe if you're a scientist and you admit you screwed something up, you look incompetent. If you're a politician and you admit admit error, you look uh, maybe easier to push around. But in a close relationship, those things don't apply. And I think if you asked people, the overwhelming majority would say, it's good to admit that you did wrong. It's good for the relationship. It uh, helps uh, repair the harm that you did. The other person will appreciate it. It'll bring you closer. So then why is it so hard to internalize that in the moment? Thank you. Do you have an answer? I oh, me? I, 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 I was looking to you for, for, for an answer. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I share your, uh, your kind of puzzlement about this. Um, because, we we all know that we make mistakes. We all we all admit it to ourselves at the very least, and it seems like it should be easy, um, at least to people we love and who and and who know us. And and I, in my experience, people are generally forgiving too. Um, so, you know, yeah, I I I I'm not sure. Um, what about you, Claudia? Do you have any ideas? Yeah, I think it's a really cool question. I think. So one hunch that I that I might have is that what, what you're really doing is when you are admitting a mistake is you are making yourself really vulnerable and um, you're exposing yourself to huge, you know, huge danger in that your apology will not be met with forgiveness and understanding and affection and love, but it will be met with counterattacks and contempt and you know, you feeling like you're really a bad person. And there's just a lot a lot at stake here. And I think that um, the, the, the risk of kind of like opening up and then creating that space for that person to say, you know, not I forgive you or that's okay, but to say, 
yeah, you know, like you're totally right. Like you've really screwed that up because you're just a terrible person. Um, I think the <laughs> that is that's so that's so hard. You know, like that's so that's so hurtful. And I and I think that um, you might be really afraid of encountering that. And I think, Mickey, you're right. I think most often when we do that, we are assuming that we do have a relationship that overall is relatively robust and healthy we are met with understanding and forgiveness there might be this this fear in us this what if you know what if they are really gonna kind of like harm me and really use this as an opportunity to tell me and not and not forgive me for instance yeah but yeah that you know that's an irrational fear, I believe, because again, I think the base, the baseline is that people are more or less, you know, willing to forgive. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I must admit, you know, even just talking about this, I, I find this all odd. Um, like, <laughs> pe you know, people like you know only willing to put up their best face, like on Facebook mm -hmm. or on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Like, I like the people who like you know debase themselves on Facebook, <laughs> who are like talking about how much they suck. I find them hilarious, and I, mm -hmm. they, 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 I, I find them endearing. Mm -hmm. I find them much more relatable and they're way more likely that I want to, I want to hang out with them than someone who's like, again, the kind of like this perfect, the, the kind of a picture of perfection, but well, everyone knows it's, it's not just a picture. Um, but maybe yeah. it's just weird. I don't know. I mean, I think, I think that we could, we could start a really interesting experiment with your listeners and have them mock, you know, kind of like, um, expose their flaws and talk about all of their shortcomings and you know apologize for mistakes and then and then see how it goes and then we kind of like get a get a sample of reactions to really see if the fear is irrational or or maybe not because yeah i think i guess there's a part of it where you never know i don't know who read that tweet you know like a person who is going to be a reviewer on my grant for instance read it and that's really possible right but again, so, okay, you know, I'm a reviewer of your grant. I read that. I'm like, you are a human being, Claudia. I like you because you're real. Oh, um, so sweet. Okay, I'm going to kind of like make a big effort to get you on the grant review comedy. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this kind of like this, this, this notion that we have to be perfect on, 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 like on certain media is like, fuck you, man. Like, you're not perfect. No one thinks you're perfect. Um, show me your flaws and then I love you. But maybe I'm the weirdo here. I don't know. But 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 Mickey, but maybe that but but maybe it's an even deeper issue and we you know, I think we just kind of like we're saying, Oh, it's like we can admit mistakes and errors to ourselves. Um, but maybe that's the thing that's actually is so hard in the first place. So we kind of like take an honest look at and live with the, live with these negative emotions and you know, the sadness or the anxiety or the guilt and shame you feel, you know. So I think maybe you kind of like have this tendency to really want to escape feeling so bad about it that you don't even get to the place of apologizing, right? Because the, yeah, facing your failures and mistakes and errors, is just like, it feels so bad and you don't want to be there, right? And and um, that, that could be a kind of like that it starts even earlier than the admission phase, the phase where you're not even want to kind of like admit it to yourself. I mean, I, I think you're probably right. Like the, the admitting to yourself is, is, is really difficult. But, like, you know, if we go back to the, the, the case of the scientists, it's, I find that interesting uh, because I think sometimes we speak with, you know, from the two sides of our mouth. We're like, 
I hear so often, like scientists will say, oh, science is all about making mistakes. It's about, you know, mm. you know, failures. It's like I, I run, you know, 10 experiments, eight of them fail. Um, but yet, like that, if that, you know, I, that's true. Um, but yet, like, if I point out, look, I think you made a mistake here to someone, they'll be, no, 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 that, 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 that can't be right. That can't be right. I mean, with, with, with a few exceptions, with rare exceptions. Um, so even like professionally, and maybe because it's public, I don't know. Yeah, but I would say the same thing. I would, yes, I totally agree. On an abstract level, we all agree that mistakes are really important and we all make errors and they're part of the, they're part of life, they're part of the scientific process, they're inevitable. Um, but the reality of making a mistake is something that I think we really would like to avoid if possible, right? We would like to, but you know, so I wonder if this is like a big affective forecasting error. Okay, <laughs> and that is, you know, that is, or, or uh, maybe not affect, just, like just forecasting. I forget about the affect part. Um, we think as scientists, our reputations are going to be hurt when we admit to making mistakes, to having papers that, you know, maybe this is not going to hold up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose if you ha- if you have like a, a long history of having papers that you know are, are mistake prone and all this stuff, that might be true. But my sense is that those scientists that actually do fess up and do be like, you know, I screwed up here, I made a mistake, I think they're they're elevated uh, among scientists um, as, you know, again, because we value truth so much. Um, I think, I, yeah, I, I think one's reputation would be elevated. I mean, in, in mm-hmm. you know, just for, from an end of one of my experience, you know, admitting to like big errors at least I don't think I've suffered reputationally. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know what people think. Um, so, but it, it seems like if anything, I've been, people have applauded, you know, my, mm-hmm. my admission of errors. And, I, and I've and i seen that, you know, the, the rare times that it does occur, uh, people kind of applaud that. With, again, with, with, with a few exceptions uh, where people kind of pile on sometimes. Yeah, um, I, I think to me, there again, the explanation is more about what your alternative activities are. And I do think there's actually an interesting parallel to the relationship where let's say that I've done something, Mickey, to hurt your feelings, but you haven't (laughs) brought it up. You haven't confronted me about it, right? So I could bring it up and I could say, Mickey, I really feel bad that I did this to you and I know I was wrong and I'm going to try not to do it again. I'm going to try and do better. But that's this like difficult, emotionally intense conversation. And maybe I would just rather hang out with you and drink a beer, right? So it it just sort of gets almost benignly, benignly neglected because there are other more tempting alternatives. And I think in the same way for scientists, rather than um, spending a lot of time talking about their past errors, they're going to just keep doing new stuff because that's what, uh, you know, you get evaluated on. Yeah. I mean, I I see that. So the opportunity, you know, the, the, Opportunity cost of doing, you know, admitting the error here means you're not, you know, you got, you're bearing some cost. You're not doing something else, right? That's not like a defense of it or anything. I'm just, yeah, I, I, that's my feeling of the mechanism more so than. I mean, certainly there are people who defensively and angrily dig in, and I, I think most kind of onlookers are like, it would be much better for you to just admit that this was a mistake or that this finding was a fluke or whatever and move on rather than writing thing after thing defending it. 
and there I think there's like that that's a very different dynamic to me. But I think a lot of the time it's like something that's not really in the conversation. Like the way that you talk about your uh the stuff that you question about your past work, like nobody was being like, you know, trying to confront you about it, right? Like you decided to bring that up. Yeah. Um I think Mickey in the in the very beginning you also had said something about the culture. And I do think that there's a that there's a very real ele- cultural element in here too that um there are some cultures where it's much more accepted and even celebrated to kind of like um, be, a, be a flawed human being, being with a lot of nuance and a lot of depth and really, you know, quirky things and a lot of a lot of flaws. And um, and I think that's at least been my experience in the North American context. It's really about, you know, presenting this picture of a perfect life, personal life, scientific life, and just um, overall... Um, being really, yeah, really perfect, right? And and I think that um, we might have some people have talked about the you know airbrushed scientific literature that the findings looked so picture perfect and it wasn't you know real like we all know that you know science is really messy and it's really really hard to, to do good work and we do get things you know like. Yeah, we, 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 we do make mistakes. And I think that maybe this is a cultural shift that we are actually in the process of experiencing within psychology. And my recollection is right, Mickey, maybe you were one of the people actually being part of that shift too, you know, to be being very public about it. And then actually also serving as evidence that it didn't, you know, you didn't get destroyed, but you got celebrated for it and people give you a lot of credit and um, do amazing work and people really honored that 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 blog post that you wrote mm-hmm. yeah so uh, I, uh, in terms of cultural differences uh, would you say that in Germany uh, there is more of a culture of if not celebrating flaws uh being more tolerant of it or more positive towards it, would you say that's that's that that's the case in Germany or or, or in other places in Europe or or no? Uh, so in Germany, definitely not. <laughs> At least not from my perspective. So in Germany, um, if you're making a mistake, that's just the end of it, and it's just so terrible. And um, it's 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 even worse than um, in North America. It was kind of like thinking of. Um, you know, other other countries, I think Russia, I had to, you know, like, it's like we're up in East Germany, the first foreign language I learned at school was Russian. And, and I think there's, there's a, you know, kind of like at least a perception of the Russian soul, they are um, facing darkness and, you know, kind of like embracing the negative is a, is a really big piece of it. And so you need to get a Russian on the show, I guess, to, to talk about that. Maybe, maybe Russians are my people. <laughs> um, all right. So I see we're running out of time. Um, and uh, maybe like one last question, um, which is also, uh, funnily enough, uh, about a, a tweet uh, of yours. And it's a tweet about tweeting. Um, and uh, actually, I don't have the, 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 the actual tweet in front of me. But essentially, you were saying how you, tw- you deleted uh, Twitter from your phone and mm-hmm. it's made a big difference in your life. So, uh, and I should say that I, I think I, uh, DM'd you saying like, or maybe even responded saying like, I wish I had your strength. 
And then there was like, I, I literally deleted it from my phone like a couple of days ago because I just, I'd lost so much time like on Twitter. Um, so I'm following your lead, but tell me what led up to it and uh, what it's been like uh, since. I did notice that Twitter, you know, exhibit A, I'm on the show because of Twitter in many ways. So I definitely, you know, can appreciate the good things that um, Britta brought, brought into my life. But um, it also brought just a lot of, a lot of noise and just a lot of um, things that were so hyper, you know, like here we have one person writing it, like tweeting about their latest paper, another person, the world is on fire. And now here's a picture of my dog, you know? And so I think kind of like the assembly of all of these things all happening at the same time was just so intense and too much for me. And I do it and I, and I, really do think that as humans we are not made for an environment where we're exposed to such intense social stimuli and then on top of it um the polarization and you know a lot of anger that i think people rightly feel about um the current state that yeah the u.s finds itself in it's there you know it's absolutely justified in many cases but it to me felt Rather than making a difference in my life for the better, it just sapped my energy and made me just so upset and sad. And and I, you know, these things won't go away just because I deleted Twitter from my phone. But I do think I can be a better person and make a make a difference somewhat if I am. I'm not constantly exposing myself to that stream of information. Or I don't know what you, it you is. can call it garbage, Jack Claudia. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so I, I did not think I'd had, had the strength to do it because I'm, I, I just, uh, I find myself, uh, so I've got a love hate thing with Twitter. I've talked about this a lot on the show and, um, like I think Twitter goes through periods like convulsions where it becomes especially toxic and especially bad. And I think now is one of those moments um, but it's not even that so much. It's just like, I just found myself losing it. Like I, I it was the first thing I would check in the morning for mm-hmm. two hours. And I'm like, I'm just wasting so much time. Um, I would rather be doing uh, this, like 20 things I'd rather be doing, you know, uh, if I evaluated this objectively with my time, um, than that. Uh, so I was like, all right, let's just see what happens. Um, and, and remarkably, I and well, so I, I deleted it. And remarkably, I'm not like you know finding other ways to get on Twitter. Of course, I have it still on my computer, and I'm not like going on my computer to just check. Uh, I'm actually like okay with it. Um, and so far, it's been I'm on it less, and I'm seeing less of what's going on. And like I, I'm totally fine with that. Um, it's 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 a positive. Yoel is still checking obsessively, though. I, I know. You know, uh, I, I guess I should disclose to to the two of you that uh, inspired by Mickey, who I didn't know was inspired by Claudia, um, I too have deleted the Twitter app from my phone <gasps> as of yesterday. Oh my god! Wow! So we're doing a group experiment here <laughs> in what happens. Exactly. Yeah. It's so why did you like... do it, Yoel? Uh, you know, just it's distracting. 
I find myself just scrolling a lot. It's not like I'm rage tweeting. It's it, there is some of the like affective unpleasantness of just like everybody's super angry right now, and and you know, like you said, uh, for some very good reasons. But it's also kind of fruitless for me to just get upset and angry and then do nothing. Uh, but it, the main reason really was that I found I was just losing thirty minutes. You know, and I would pick up my phone, meaning do something else, and be like, "Oh, let's just check Twitter." And then thirty minutes later, I'm still scrolling. And and um, you know, I mean, obviously, it's it's still early days. But I did have this really funny experience today, where I was on the couch. My laptop is on the like table, the dining room table, so it's like maybe twelve feet away. And I pick up my phone. I'm like, I should check Twitter. And I'm like, Oh, I don't have the app. I don't feel like walking over to my laptop. And I just did something else, right? It's just it's such a short-lived instinct. Like if it's not gratified immediately, it goes away. Yeah. Isn't it so funny? The, the ex-Twitterati of North America here. <laughs> Gathering here together. Yeah. <laughs> yes, right. So, you know, I, I, if, if nothing else, uh, if if like a few listeners delete Twitter from their phone, I, I feel this this conversation would be uh, would be <laughs> as in, would increase like subjective well-being among uh, those people. Yeah. And it's, it's very true. You can still access it. It's not like it's gone from your life. But I do think there's a very interesting addict like mechanism that's starts once you open the app on your phone and then you start scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and i don't know what it is but there's you it sucks you in and you lose so much time and if you can stop that first grabbing your phone then that's you know that's it and that's actually if it's not on your phone um yeah i totally have the very same experience like you you're not gonna walk to my computer and you know kind of like go on you know and like open twitter on my website no and 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 so i saved myself from that from that time hole or time you know that from from that experience just by deleting deleting the app and like you can forget about like tweeting when you're on the toilet i mean that just doesn't happen anymore <laughs> <laughs> you just have to bring the laptop in there, man. It's still possible. <laughs> All right. I think with that, uh, maybe we should uh, thank you, Claudia, for, um, uh, for for spending time with us. And uh, I think, you know, you know, your couple of tweets have, have changed like uh, <laughs> a, a, quite a few things. So uh, here we are trashing Twitter, but uh, it has uh, has some positives too, clearly. For sure, exactly. I think uh, a big takeaway probably from, from our conversation is the importance of nuance and that um, there are, you know, good and bad sides to almost everything and certainly certainly Twitter. And I've been just so grateful to, you know, be on your show. It's been super fun. And yeah, I feel really honored and wish you many more years of successful podcasting. And my prediction for you is um, awesome. <laughs> well, thank you, Claudia. 